This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Today. Have you heard about the uh, Rachel Moran case, which is up in Maryland? This is interesting to me. I kind of I pulled an odd article because I wanted to talk about her for a second. This case has kind of happened. It, it, I don't. I don't know that I would call it brand new news, but there have been a few things that have happened that just struck me as really odd. And I noticed that, so the Independent read this article, and this article sort of sums up some of my odd thoughts. Andrea Cavalier uh, wrote this article, and it popped up on, uh, I guess, September 5th of 2023. And I was looking at it. It just says, Rachel Moran update, criminal profiler gets involved in hunt for killer as murder probe extends to Chicago. And for those of you who don't know, the the re- the Rachel Marin case, she was found dead on a popular Maryland hiking trail. And it's it's been a minute since that happened. With So she's a mother of five. Her body was found on August the 6th. And I, I mention all of this because it looked like a case, you know, a lot of times I look at cases like this and I think it's either random or it's someone close to them. But that's not what happened. So... I guess if people want to know the basics on the uh, Rachel Marin case, uh, the best summary of that would be she goes missing for, let me, let me just find one that's a little better than what I'm saying. She went missing on August 5th. It was August 5th. Okay. Fox 5 News out of Baltimore, they ran an article on September 4th, and it's got a good summary on this. The, the gist of it was she, as Meg mentioned, she went missing on August the 5th. And her body was found on August the 6th off of a nearby trail. That's really the, the case at large. But they almost immediately have a suspect. And the suspect is linked to other weird things. What caught my attention was the dog of the bounty hunter gets involved. And anytime he's involved, something's going to turn into a spectacle. And News Nation had him on talking about this murder so the idea here uh of dog the bounty hunter getting involved who's known as Dwayne chapman he comes on and he says that the hartford county sheriff's office uh when they released this video they had an idea of um who this man was and i was like okay it's gonna be somebody local he's done something but during this interview and, and it's not him like bringing the information out. That's just where it happened to like be listening when it happened. He, this is from Los Angeles. So they have a suspect who's five feet, nine, 160 pounds, uh, 20 to 30 years of age, dark hair, muscular build. He's believed to be of Hispanic descent. 
But they also have him, like, on video. So they point out uh, in the in the dog, the bounty hunter thing, and then later with the, the sheriff's office, they point out that he's shirtless in the video and he's leaving the house uh, under cover of night. But they started saying some stuff about maybe he's a serial killer. They pointed out his haircut and like whether or not it could be uh, military issued. But I can't like I can't wrap my head around how do you get from this, but it was a home invasion and assault in Los Angeles. And it's like before, if it I'm on, in March. Okay. So uh, if, if it's in March, then it's before this assault. Six months later, this guy ends up assaulting a woman and murdering her on a trail. What did you think of this? Oh, and by the way, part of this that we have no information about is that they're questioning a suspect right now in Washington, D.C., related to all of this. Oh, wait, I said suspect, but realistically, they're questioning a person related to this investigation, like, now. Well, you're right about it. It's sort of, well, for one thing, it's confusing. For another thing, um, it, uh, I don't know that they're being as clear as they possibly could be about this, but essentially what happened was, a couple weeks after Rachel Morin was like, she just didn't come back from her hike or whatever she was doing. And so she's reported missing, but it's a very short amount of time that she's missing. And then they find her body. And within a couple of weeks, they had developed a DNA profile that they were confident uh, would, you know, link to whomever did this to her. And then uh, I assume they put it into CODIS, and the CODIS match uh, yielded a, another crime that had happened all the way across the country in uh, Los Angeles, and they had a video there, right, of the guy leaving the house. Right. And so um, I feel like that's a little bit confusing. Uh, there's been a little bit of sort of back and forth. Like I know um, Rachel Morin's sister has appeared alongside of uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter and uh, saying like, I don't know why somebody hasn't come forward. And I, I have a feeling it's because it's not quite clear what's happening, right? Right. I, well, that's that's one of the reasons I'm bringing this up. Usually I can just look at something and I kind of get an idea of what's going on. And in a lot of cases, like, turns out to be spot on or, like, there's some variable that the police didn't release and that kind of changes it. Well, a, a criminal profiler has created a behavioral outline for the killer of Rachel Morin, who is the mother of five in Maryland. Now, the other case is a, is a, is a brutal assault, right? Like, but the, On a the, little kid, right? I don't, I, I don't know. I think it is a young woman. I don't know how young she is, okay. but it, and her name's not given of course, cause um, she didn't die. She was just assaulted and that's where that evidence comes from. But I didn't see where they had a good idea of who this dude was. Well, so dog, the bounty hunter, he threw this Instagram profile link out there and then they, they linked it here. I, they don't know who he is, but they have his DNA and they have him on video. So they don't know his name. Right. But they have his DNA and a criminal profiler has created this behavioral outline. And I wanted to see, I saw it 
but now I've lost it, what it was. And I was like, why waste time on a behavioral outline when you have someone's DNA profile? Okay, so this, oh, all right. So to point that, I wondered that same thing, and it's going to tie into the, what we're talking about today. Pat Brown is talking about creating the profile voluntarily, not related to, like, doing this on behalf of the Moran family. Rebecca Moran, Rachel's sister, had to do it. And they put kind of some dribs and drabs in here. We've talked about these before. Like, when we talked about Stalk, remember those guys? Yeah, and I'm not saying, like, okay, so that's very nice of them to do that. Okay, um, and the the behavioral profile that was provided suggested uh, the killer likely exhibits several psychopathic traits, including lack of empathy, compulsive lying, narcissism, and manipulation. I saw that. And uh, you know, do we know who the killer is now? So it does go on, and it's it, uh, she says uh, the killer wouldn't be accounted for either at work or home between six p.m. and dusk. So basically. Starting, I think, Saturday, August 5th, 2023, they were trying to narrow down a timeline of when he would have ran into her. So he said after six, but before nine o'clock or so, I think is what they're indicating there. I just thought it was interesting uh, that. So, first of all, Pat Brown is a talking head. Let's just go ahead and throw that out there. I, I don't have any problem with the situation that, like, what has happened with that. All I'm saying is, I'm telling you, it is. I, I bet it would actually be easier to just do a genetic genealogy comparison of the DNA profile that is available because we're at that point now. So we're talking about Rachel Moran went missing on the fifth and was found the sixth. So we're one month out from that, right? Yeah. Okay. They've already identified DNA that uh, they don't say where it comes from, but I assume it's relevant to the case. I would wonder if it was under her fingernails, but, you know. You mean from the, from the Rachel Marin crime scene, they have DNA. So, yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. how it was linked to the L.A. house, right? I mean, the yeah. L.A. attack where there was a doorbell cam, right? Correct. The other issue is, like, I don't know where that particular doorbell cam footage came from, but, you know, did they make sure that there wasn't some from the house across the street that showed his face? That's what I was wondering, too. If you've got some in this day and age, if you've got some, then you probably have more. I really find what he did on like in front of the doorbell camera really, really, really annoying. Because it was almost like he just, he's like, it doesn't even matter that there's a doorbell cam there because you're not going to be able to identify me. Yeah. And to me, that just adds this element of it that is like, it's really annoying to me. I mean, I don't like guys that attack women anyway. You know, the whole point of a doorbell cam would be to catch things like this. He doesn't show his face. He's able to get out of the door uh, specifically because he's leaving the house, right? And yes. this is the house of the victim in LA where after her attack, they did, you know, a, a crime scene examination on her and they were able to retrieve a DNA profile from a suspected perpetrator of the attack on her. And so the, obviously the guy leaving the house right after the attack is the guy, right? Yeah. And, they then, so that's in CODIS from March of, I assume it's this year. There's not a lot of information, which is fine because that 
you know, this is a victim of a crime who, you know, she she wasn't killed. She was assaulted in her home. And that led to the match of the DNA found on Rachel Morin in August, all the way across the country in Maryland, right? Right. Okay. So if they take that profile and they put it into a genealogical database, they're going to find who this person is. And it's going to be very quick. And the reason I say that is because you've got to have somebody that, I mean, they're talking about where he was the day of Rachel Morin's murder. How about somebody that was in California in March and in Maryland in August? So I read that this is going to be more difficult because of the idea that like maybe this guy, they keep attaching a couple of different words One of those is he's Hispanic or he's Latin American. And I brought it up because apparently like Parabon specializes in these type cases, but there are a large section of the population who are Hispanic that go under or unrepresented in the databases, which make it less likely that a DNA profile would match. Is that something you're familiar with? Because it was the first time I'd heard it. Um, I can tell you uh, sort of about that. Uh, It's possible that that could be a thing, but it's also, I would say it's just as likely that that wouldn't even come into play. Okay. There's so many profiles available now um, as far as sort of what, how it's, they work off of them, right? And so that is people who have like, they voluntarily have put their DNA in the system. Now, okay, so this person is not a convicted a uh, person who was required to put their DNA in the CODIS database, right? Because we would know who they were already. Well, the police at least would. It would have been I mean, a, yeah. just like it was a hit with the crime scene in in March in Los Angeles. It would have hit a perpetrator, right? If they yeah. if they had been convicted of something and they had had their DNA in CODIS, so this is somebody that at least right now is not in CODIS. Okay. And so it's not somebody that um, has ever been arrested for a, or I'm sorry, it, it depends on what state, and we're hopping across the country here. Some states require it upon arrest, some states require it upon conviction. But there's certain crimes that are committed where they take a swab of your DNA, and then it's going to be in CODIS forever, okay? And that's not the case here. I would say, now, I don't know about the numbers, like when you were saying about like an underrepresented um, or unrepresented population of DNA profiles. Um, I would say that that's probably going to be irrelevant, um, just based on sort of what I've seen. And I'm not like an expert at this, but what I am saying is they've got a, a, a profile that was good enough to match across uh, crime scenes, right? Right. Once they put that in and they look at it genealogically, they will find who it is. And there will be somebody far enough back that or there will be somebody close enough to him that they'll be able to narrow it down. And the span of, you know, it's a short amount of time and it's a long span of distance, right? Yeah. Um, it's like 3,000 miles, right? Or yes. Probably more than that. From, you know, that particular place in California to that particular place in Maryland. And so, you know, that's going to narrow it down real quick. 
Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's these. So these cases are interesting to me. And you're right. It's about thirty seven hundred miles, depending on door to door. But if you go roughly Bel Air right outside of it to, say, Baltimore, it's going to be about thirty seven hundred miles. I just thought this was fascinating from the perspective of having video of the guy, having his DNA, two separate crime scenes. And nobody knows who he is. Right. Especially since like the, the video is from. It's from the, yeah, it's from the California case. Right. And again, of course they had no idea that, you know, this was going to happen, but he walked, so he, like the side of his body comes out the door, can't see his face. Then he walks forward towards um, whatever, wherever he's going without showing his face. But it looks like there were, could possibly be other houses around there. Yeah, in, in the video and the stills, it looks to me like it's either a little neighborhood or like a, a cul-de-sac off a neighborhood where exactly what you're saying should be true. And the other thing is, like, so at at least with Ring, and I don't know about other uh, brands of doorbell cameras, like Ring holds on to the footage even if, like, you're not a subscriber to their service or whatever. Right, it's on the server, yeah. Um, and they have it for a certain amount of time. I don't know. March seems like it could be pushing it, but they could go back and just make sure, you know, that they're, I, mean, I hope they did it at the time. Certainly they did. They, they gathered this, right? Yeah. It seems I would, like that, I that would, would go across, yeah. I would go across and, and, you know, get the information. Now I will tell you, this has been a while and it, it wasn't like ring, but um, when my neighbors, their house was broken into like, they sort of asked me if I'd seen anything, and I was like, no. And then it, like, occurred to me, you know, several hours later that, oh, I have cameras, right? And my camera was sort of pointed at my neighbor's house. It, it wasn't on it, but, like, it caught enough. The guy was eventually convicted, but I, like, got the footage, and I took it to the police officer that was sitting outside. And so there was no, like, like I don't know what how to say that. So I'm saying that they could have gone to the neighbor's house and somebody could have been like, yeah, I don't have any of that footage. Right. Right. But there wasn't like a formal process or investigation. You just sort of wandered out and you were volunteered it. Correct. And so, you know, obviously it was just a break in. It was not, nobody was hurt, but like if I hadn't, if it hadn't occurred to me that like, Oh yeah, I have cameras that like might've caught something. Right. They never would have gotten that footage. Right. And so that that makes me wonder, like, well, did they go across the street and maybe the person across the street was like, I don't subscribe to Ring, so I don't get the footage, right? Um, I just have the ability to talk to somebody that's standing outside of my door. And, like, I don't know. Hopefully they, they know that, like, there's an option to just, you know, send a subpoena to Ring and they will give you the footage if they have it. I, I don't know. I'm sure they know that by now. This is, like, a whole thing. And as far as, like you know, jumping the gun on the DNA. I'm sure that like, oh, it's so expensive. I tell you what, I bet it's not more expensive than what's going to happen in the meantime. Pat Brown got involved in this. That was one of the things I was going to point out. Do you know, do you know who she is? She's She's the volunteer profiler talking here. She has a couple of books. One of her books is, I think it's Killing for Sport, uh, The Mind of Serial Killers. And then The Profiler, which was my life hunting serial killers. She's been around for a while. So without being like, 
you know, all due respect, honestly, um, I feel like there are some pretty small children in the world that could say that um, the killer likely exhibited several psychopathic traits, including lack of empathy, compulsive lying, narcissism, and manipulation. I would not disagree with you if you were to say that. Okay. I'm just saying, like, I really feel like that could, like, cover all kinds of crimes. It it could. I mean, I, I, I was, I was sort of, and you get you guys can check Pat Brown out. She's a she's a writer and, and author. Disre- I don't mean any disrespect to her. She's trying to help this situation. I think that's awesome. And if I hadn't if I didn't know about the DNA, I would it, I would be like, oh yeah, everybody needs to put forth their best effort. Except like here, we don't. All they have to do is is do the genetic genealogy. That's it. Well, saying this as politely as I can. Like people attack them, uh, attach themselves to spectacle. Like this is akin to the super cop ideas of old. With Pat Brown, you know, her first book popped out in probably two thousand or two thousand one. She has, I'll say this: she has lived in New Jersey and Virginia that I know of, and I know that because I actually know Patricia Cornwell, and Patricia Cornwell lives near her. And I've, uh, she follows us on social media. I've talked to her a couple of times over the years. They, they have a similar path in some ways, but Patricia Cornwell became like Patricia Cornwell, like postmortem and writing about Scarpetta with Pat Brown. She wrote more about, uh, kind of true crime, uh, focused on serial killers. And she appears as like kind of a commentator. I, I, I call them talking heads. That might be a rude term but like she pops up from from time to time and i bring her up here today and i bring up this case one because this case needs some attention two pat brown is interesting to me because of what you just said which is she's attaching herself to spectacle and in some ways some of the things that she says is sort of stating the obvious i know she's been very outspoken about like Madeline McCann's case. And at one point she was on several different Discovery Channel documentaries that covered historical cases, like going all the way back to like uh, Cleopatra, Jack the Ripper. Um, And I, I I don't know a ton about her. I just know that like she provides commentary on profiling and criminal analysis and that like sort of generally speaking, I have I have respect for her. I don't totally understand where she's coming from. She comes up today because we've been taught, we sort of, we talked about Kevin Green and then we talked about uh, Gerald Parker and now we've moved to Earl Nelson. So as we move into the second episode on Earl Nelson, I'm bringing up Pat Brown because one of the sources that I have in here and take this for, for what you will, it's, uh, it's a book called The Laughing Gorilla. And it's uh, if you want to pick this book up, it's actually in the Internet archives where you can get it for free and borrow it and read it. It's a really good read. However, I will say that it comes from sort of an odd person. So, so the author of The Laughing Gorilla, which is a book, uh, I think the subtitle for it is A True Story of Police Corruption and Murder. And it's a 2009 book that has a lot of Earl Nelson's 
case covered in that. And Earl Nelson in general has been covered by some of the really big, uh, we talked about this uh, in, the, in the first episode on him, names in true crime and, and sort of criminology true crime, which is this whole like thing where people attach themselves to these cases that aren't that well covered. And they write a book on it in sort of, uh, and bury it in their bibliography of the books they've written. And when they write something more high profile, they become very famous because of it. I say all of this because Robert Graysmith wrote like one of the, the big books about the Zodiac, which became Zodiac directed by David Fincher. And he still, to me, falls into this category of people who are making observations like the three-year-olds in our lives who have no filter. Um, but I will say it goes a, a step further because Graysmith, he actually was a political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle in the 60s. And when the Zodiac Killer's case was rising to prominence, he was obsessed with trying to decode the letters that had been written by the killer. And that's what the, the movie and the books are actually about, is that level of obsession. And he ends up eventually giving up his career working as a political cartoonist, and he starts writing more and more books. And I, uh, I have a favorite in there. It's this book called The Girl in Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock Shower. It's a really good read. I think it's from around 2010 or 2011. You can also find that book on the Internet Archive. It's a good read, as is uh, The Laughing Gorilla, where some of the information for today's episode comes from. But I thought it was interesting how these people who, as far as I can tell, Pat Brown and Robert Graysmith, they don't have a ton of education in terms of like formal criminology or medical or law enforcement, but they do have a lot of hands-on experience and, and stories that become spectacles. I think that Rachel Morin's case is going to be a bit of a spectacle just from the, like, whatever name they come up with this guy. And I don't think this guy's a serial killer. He seems like an opportunist to me. So when they start laying down these things, it's a little odd, but you know, Pat Brown is local. She's in Maryland now. She was in Virginia before, but she's local to... Uh, the Marin family, and she's done this as a volunteer service. And I'm sure some of that is also to get attention for herself and the many things that she does, uh, because you, you kind of take those chances. We've seen that a lot over the last couple of years where people will latch on to the Summer Wells case or to Gabby Petito's case, and they sort of write it to their own star, so to speak. But we're coming back around to Earl Nelson. We Where we left off with him, Earl Nelson had committed his first big crime. And that was he had posed as a plumber to enter uh, a residence on May 19th of 1921 at uh, Pacific Avenue in San Francisco. And he attempted to molest a 12-year-old girl there named Mary Summers. She screamed and attracted her nine-year-old brother. And it just became a kerfuffle where Earl Nelson had no choice but to run away. And he was captured hours later while riding on a trolley. He, and we had talked a little bit about his first foray into Napa State Mental Hospital. He gets deemed dangerous and he gets recommitted to Napa State Mental Hospital. 
Now, he escapes again on two occasions before finally being discharged in 1925. 1925 and 1926 is when Earl Nelson becomes pretty vicious. Uh, I think we had started to mention like some of his aliases and whatnot. From February to November of 1926, after he's gotten out of this institution in 1925, in California, Portland, and Seattle, Earl Nelson goes on a killing spree. He kicks this off, and his first known murder victim is a wealthy 60-year-old San Francisco landlady who has a boarding house on Pierce Street named Clara Newman. And on February 20th, 1926, Earl Nelson appears posing as a potential tenant, and he uses the alias Roger Wilson. He is in Clara Newman's home, pretending like he wants to rent a room from her. And sometime after he starts to do this, he strangles Clara Newman, and then he rapes her dead body. He ends up hiding her corpse in a vacant apartment in the boarding house. Now, he will move on to another location here, which is not that dissimilar from what we were talking about with Rachel Moran, like a cut and run situation. But what he does is he goes from San Francisco to San Jose. Now that's about 56 miles away door to door. And when he gets to San Jose on March the 2nd, he encounters 63 year old Laura Beal. B-E-A-L-E, and he strangles her in her home. The silk cord that had been used to strangle Laura had been wound so tightly around her neck that it had embedded in her flesh. And we're adding another talking head for these sources in some of this, and that's uh, Harold Schechter is involved. We talked about him briefly. Right, and so that's like, this is... Uh, rage, right? That's what. Yeah, uh, it does that's how ask I, you what you thought of it. That's how a silken cord becomes embedded in someone's neck, like nothing but rage. Yeah, so you've got these ligature stranglings going on with a significant amount of strength and rage coming out. And this yeah. is somebody that he doesn't know. Right. These are these are essentially recent acquaintances. Yeah, and th- strangers. Right, and so he has. He's looking for a place to stay. They go to show him the room, and then this is what happens. Right. So his spree continues, and the next known victim is another sixty-three-year-old woman named Lillian Saint Mary. Now, this is on June twenty-sixth of nineteen twenty-six, and this is back in San Francisco. Two weeks after that. He goes 325 miles south to Santa Barbara and another boarding house, a 53-year-old woman is letting out. Her name is Ollie Russell and he strangles her with a cord there. An autopsy on Ollie Russell, it confirms that after death, she had been sexually assaulted. So the police in San Francisco and San Jose, they're starting to put together this really 
odd modus operandi where boarding house owners or letters, whatever you want to call them, are being murdered by strangulation and then sexually assaulted. So they start to assume that some of these cases are going to be connected. On August the 16th of 1926, 52-year-old Mary Nisbet, who is running an apartment building in Oakland, is found strangled by her husband. And it's discovered that she had also been sexually assaulted after she was killed. And she's in the bathroom of a, a vacant apartment in this building. So it seems like what this guy is doing, what Earl is doing here, is he knows there's going to be an empty space with no people in it. He's asking them under a, different pseudonyms to let him look at the space like he's going to rent it from them. And once he gets them in there and gets the door closed, he's able to do whatever he wants. And he knows that no one is going to be coming in and, and catching him. Nor will anybody be able to identify him. Correct. And because most of these situations where you're interviewing a, a prospective printer or tenant, yeah, that's a better word. When you're interviewing these tenants, you have set it up so that they can get a tour and you can size them up. And I mean, in this day and age, they do references, you do an application, but back then it would have been more of a handshake than a lease. Well, right. And there would have been a sign in the window, right? Like room Correct. for rent. And Correct. so now I, I don't know. It, it seems awfully convenient that like every single time he was successful at this, the woman was there and none of the other tenants or anybody else that lived in the house was around, right? Right. But I mean, it happened. If you think about that, it's it's actually a pretty clever MO, right? Yeah. To show up, to give a different name, and to want to see the room. And then at any point in time with the fake name having been given, if something were to come up, he can abort, right? He yeah. can abort the situation. But as long as he gets, you know, into the front door and then if nobody's around, he kills them and then he leaves. And it's like nobody even knew he was there to begin with. Yeah. It goes a step further with Mary Nisbet. Now, the police at the time, they believed that it was a strong possibility. And this is according to Schechter and Graysmith and Paul Drexler. They believed that he might have been the her killer. They end up clearing him pretty quickly. And witnesses told police that when Mary Nisbet was killed in Oakland, there had been a man lurking outside the apartment building doing exactly what you described. He was looking at a sign or an, uh, an advertisement, and he was a creepy, smiling stranger. Now... When the police found this out and they started going back through looking for other witnesses and commonalities between the cases, multiple people described having seen a man at, that they described as dark and stocky with long arms and large hands. Because of this, the newspapers at the time began to refer to him as the dark strangler, the gorilla man, or the gorilla killer. 
Do you think that he had he became aware of that at some point? Yeah, I think he became aware of it after. So I think after Mary, which is in August, I think he realized like he probably should not keep doing exactly the same thing over and over again in the like in these close proximities. I think he thought that he was moving around enough between San Francisco and Santa Barbara and Oakland that it would be longer before it would start to be connected. But I, I think the and if you read the newspapers at the time, you can see some of this. I think that the police had a pretty good idea of what was connected. And that's how they were so quick to rule out some of the other suspects they had. Right. And uh, contrary to popular belief, like this is a really weird crime. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really weird crime. Like, and you have to remember, this is the 1920s. This is before the Great Depression. So what's happening here is it's pretty unusual. And when I say it's unusual, it's on multiple levels. One, you have no real suspect in this crime, which is a murder of a landlord who was just literally meeting a prospective tenant. And three, after this murder, which in most of them so far is a cord strangulation, he's then sexually assaulting a corpse. All of that is highly unusual for America in 1926. Right, and so it wouldn't have really mattered what part of California he was in, like they were going to catch on. Yeah, yeah, so he, he realizes that. I think he knew it. And then Earl's next step is he gets the hell out of town. The problem is, even though he gets out of town, he does the same thing. So where he goes next is Portland, Oregon. So he basically leaves Southern California. He heads up to Portland, Oregon, and he finds a 35-year-old woman renting a room named Beata Withers. On October the 19th, he rapes her, murders her, and rapes her again. I don't know if the sources I have on this mean to say, um, and and some of this is like uh, from the Bismarck Tribune out of uh, North Dakota. And these are literally newspaper archives from 1926. So they might not have wanted to say that the, you know, he's sexually assaulting a corpse, but the bottom line is. That was his MO. That's his MO. So she, uh, with Miss Withers, her body is found by her teenage son. She had been stuffed into a steamer trunk in the attic of their house And then clothing had been piled on top of her. The next day, on October the 20th, 59-year-old Virginia Grant was murdered in a vacant property that she owned on East 22nd Street in Portland. And her body was hidden behind the home's basement furnace. The next day, October 21st, landlady Mabel Fluke vanishes from her home in Portland. And now her body is found four days later in the attic, and she's been strangled with a scarf. So despite these happening in literally a span of three days, a jury of four men and three women doing an inquest for the coroner, they come in on October the 28th to evaluate the first death in Portland, and that's the Withers death. So for some reason, the jury's decision is split right down the middle. Three people believed 
that her death was a suicide, and three people believed it was a murder, and one person said they did not know what to do with it. That's from uh, the Eugene Guard in an article from October 28th, 1926. And to me, that's absolutely ridiculous. If she was assaulted, uh, she didn't kill herself. No, no, she I'm did not. I'm just saying, and that was uh, just to kind of refresh there. There was a lot of murder in those last few sentences. She was found by her teenage son stuffed beneath clothing inside of a steamer trunk in the attic of her home. Correct. Um, that is a that is not a uh, suicide, and I find it odd that there was some controversy there. Yeah, it is odd. And, you know, the coverage on that is weird. And I run into this from time to time with newspaper archives. Depending on newspaperarchives.com and newspapers.com, the jury in some instances is said to be like a forewoman or a prosecutor or a coroner with three men and three women, four men and three women. So I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm just giving a bad fact there. I'm just, the point is, the jury, half of them said, this woman's death was a suicide and the other half said it was a murder and Earl believed his luck had run out. So he bailed. That's three murders in three days. I think I would leave too. Wouldn't you? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I find that that's, that's crazy. That's a lot. That is so much murder so quickly. I, I honestly think that the coroner's jury was the coroner's inquest uh, being split like that. I think it was like there was an element of denial to that. Yeah, I, I mean, so back then forensics would have been different, but they do have a coroner. Now, have you ever dealt with like a coroner's jury before? It, like yeah, the I mean, an, yeah, inquest? I've, I've seen I've seen a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. So a lot of times an inquest comes in because a coroner is trying to determine the identity and the cause of death and wants some, like, an extra opinion. Depending on the jurisdiction, it could, they could do more than that. Cause and manner can come into play. In this instance, I don't know how they get to that. With Like, they think she hung herself under the clothing in a steamer trunk? I don't. Well, but she was also raped. It says she was raped. It does. It does say that. And so the way that this went for me is uh, the Bismarck Tribune article I mentioned. The headline of the article is body of woman missing since Tuesday found. So basically she is found three or four days after this has happened to her. So she was actually found after the other um, women. Correct. Even well, though she was first. Well, she's first. And then I think Virginia Grant, I think Virginia Grant is found first. And then Beta Withers is found second. And okay. then Mabel Fluke is missing, but she's actually not left the premises. And she, uh, Mabel Fluke gets found on, according to this other source, uh, I'll just call him Newton for the moment. She's found right before the coroner's inquest takes place on the 28th. Well, I feel like um, this, uh, those sort of correlation, I don't know if the correlations were made to the jury or not, but I, I think it's relevant, especially given like 
the California situation immediately preceding it, right? I would agree with you, yeah. Like I said, Earl left town. After he's committed these murders in Portland, Earl Nelson briefly returns to San Francisco, California. He meets a woman named Anna Edmonds. And Anna is a 56-year-old widow. She is also raped and murdered. Police are hesitant to attribute this crime to the same series of crimes that have gone on. But a friend of Anna Edmonds comes forward and she says that she stopped by uh, Anna's home on the day that she was murdered. And in the parlor, there was a strange man who was arranging to purchase Anna's house. The woman's description of the strange man, who she did not know, matched those of the gorilla man or the gorilla killer. The next day, uh, in Burlingame, California, and you know, I don't know how much people know about that area of California. Burlingame is on the same peninsula as San Francisco, and it has like coastal property that looks out onto the San Francisco Bay. So it's not that far away that he goes for this one. A 28-year-old pregnant woman is showing her home to a man who has responded to an ad as a potential buyer. She survives this attack, and she describes the man as being around 5 feet 8 inches tall, being very well-dressed and very well-spoken. The woman told reporters later on, uh, in the local coverage here comes uh, to us courtesy of Harold Schechter's book. She didn't even feel threatened by the guy, but she realized that some of the things he was saying were peculiar. He was making comments that she felt like were engaging her to look at the ceiling of her house, which is so strange to me. But she was talking to him about the ceilings, and her quote is, I realized he was trying to get me to look up so that he could get behind me and he could grab my throat. What do you think about that? I don't know. I, so, so here's why I ask. How can a guy who is put together enough that people think he is genuinely a potential renter or a person who may purchase their house. But at the same time that he is that put together, he is committing multiple murders in very short periods of time. It's an interesting situation. Um, I think part of like part of the case that addresses that uh, comes up, but essentially from the so he was in Oregon beginning in October of 26, right? And so now he's back to California and we're in November of 26. So like it's not a long period of time, right? This is a no, very not at all. quick turnaround. Okay, but one of the things that comes up later is that part of his deal was he started off each time he had a sort of a spree he started off with like a shave and a haircut and like he would steal nice clothes from some of the women that, because, you know, their late husband's clothes were still in the house or whatever. Right. Or he would go to a secondhand store and buy a nice suit. And so it was almost like he had a reset button. Right. 
Yeah, he's like respawned and starting his round over. It, it, like, I mean, I'm not kidding. And so, like, at first he looks like very nice and put together. But, but then the other thing is like, you know, he the whole time in between there's shave and haircuts. Like he didn't bathe at all, right? So it's thought that, you know, he had bad hygiene practices. But also that like that was part of his disguise, Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Because like the the nice looking guy on the first, second or third day of the his crime spree looked nothing like the guy he would have been by the time they picked up his trail. Right. Right. Well, he doesn't stop there. Uh, so he that woman survives, by the way. I don't know if I said that, but the pregnant right. woman selling her house, she survives. And I, and I have no idea, like, what – I can't imagine myself being in a situation like that. So I have no idea about, like, looking up at the ceiling. I mean, it's insightful from her, obviously, and it's also in hindsight, right? So, you know, who knows if he was really going to do something if she had looked up. I mean, he attacked her, so and she got away. So she, you know, looking back on it, she felt like there were signs. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what: whether she's accurate or not about him doing it, that moment in the docu series they need to make about this dude is so creepy. To see him standing there in like one version of his, you know, outfit, and he's like sliding his hand back there as he meant. That's just. That's very terrifying to think about that. It really is. Ten days later, on so that happens on November the 19th. We move forward ten days to November 29th, and Earl is back in Portland. And there he rapes, he murders and rapes Blanche Myers in her Portland home. Now, for the first time, police get unknown fingerprints from an iron bedpost at Blanche Meyer's home and everything goes crazy at this point. This is like the, the moment in the Zodiac story where the newsroom is everybody looking for a lead and the police are all forming a task force and they're gathering all the news sources they can and uh, warning people like to walk in pairs And the Oregonian reports that the third floor of the Portland Police Bureau during this time had been like turned into a madhouse and that these murders, because they started up again, like after he runs down to San Francisco and comes back, because there's not this long period of time here, these murders made everybody crazy. There were hundreds of phone calls and everybody was being called a suspicious character. People were turning in their boyfriends and their husbands. One local woman calls into police and she says that right after Thanksgiving of 2026, there was a man who had been staying at her boarding house named Adrian Harris. And she said the day of Blanche Meyer's murder, The man had told her that he was leaving and he was going to get on a train to go to Vancouver, Washington. And he indicated that he would not be returning to the boarding house. Now, he had paid for multiple days worth of rent ahead of time. And the woman found that to be suspicious. He gave her, the the woman who ran the boarding house, and another female boarder from the house 
jewelry as a gift because it's the holiday times. That's the other thing you have to remember here. I, was, I meant to point this out. This is all taking place between Halloween and Christmas. Like basically it starts like right around Halloween and everything eases off by Christmas. So it's a specific time of year today. Back then, I think it might've been a little more a nostalgic time of year. So he's giving gifts, but the police confirm that the jewelry he has given as a gift belonged to a woman who hasn't even come up yet. And that is a widow named Florence Monks, who had been murdered and raped in her Seattle home on November the 23rd. This guy doesn't stop. And what I will say about this time of year uh, for him is it's only the beginning. 1926. Thanksgiving Day. Uh, which no, day? Uh, it would have been it, so. So that murder takes place the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving twenty third. Yeah. Well, she was found that day, right? Oh no, she was murdered. She, okay. she was she was murdered that day. A rare thing happens at the time. Law enforcement in California and Oregon start issuing public safety announcements. Some of the first PSAs to citizens, and what they're hoping to do is either. They really want to catch the guy, but if they can't catch him, they at least want to stop him from killing more people. So elderly women are advised, so anybody over, I think it was the age of 45, are advised to take precautions while renting rooms or inviting strangers into their homes. Now, the Portland Police Bureau during this time, they issued the following statement to the public in the press. Do not show your houses or rooms for rent while alone. If necessary, call a policeman to accompany you. Crimes such as these should be prevented and could have been prevented if women had been more careful. I do not wish to duly alarm the people of Portland, but there is no denying the situation is grave. Okay. (laughs) I just want to say something there about (laughs) the police's approach to that. I want to think that the police have come a long way since 1926, since it's 97 years. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that statement? Um, I feel like that, you know, it was very commonplace. And unfortunately, we probably haven't come as far as we would have liked to have in saying that, you know, it could have been prevented if women had been more careful because, you know, it could have also been prevented if like, you know, a man wasn't doing it. Yeah. But also, uh, can you imagine? So this gives you a sign of the times. The Portland Police Bureau issues this announcement indicating that if you need to show a room to a potential tenant and you are a boarding house owner who is elderly, which I don't know that I agree that 45 is elderly or whatever, they're saying for you to call the police and a policeman will accompany you. Can you imagine that happening now? It's, it, it would be insane. Like, yeah. It would be pandemonium trying but to. It's a good, it's a good sort of comparison to think. I mean, you can't even get like a police officer to respond to like, you know, a house being broken into now. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just a paperwork piece. It's just a piece of paper you file. 
Right. And so, you know, to say like, oh, you know, women, be on the alert. You need to be more careful um, because this could be prevented if you were more careful. You know, call a big, strong policeman to come out and, you know, show your room with you. So, I mean, while I get it, at the same time, it just, it just oozes chauvinism. Yeah, I agree with you. And unfortunately, at the time, as far as California, Oregon, and specifically with Portland, uh, they started patting themselves on the back because you know what happened? It stopped. It stopped. Yeah, so it stopped. And we don't have any more Earl Nelson murders in California or Oregon through the at all. I mean, that's it as far as we know. But I'll say this. The murders don't stop. They just stop in that location. Because on December 23rd, the body of Almira Berard, who is 41 years old, she's found in her Council Bluffs, Iowa home. She had been garroted with a shirt. Now, all of the initial reports and the investigation indicate that Amira Berard committed suicide. She had recently been discharged from a psychiatric institution. But afterwards, they discovered that she had been raped. So while they may have believed that she had killed herself, she could not have raped herself. Two days that after. It didn't seem to matter earlier, but. I know. I'm, I'm, it's, it's a bizarre thing. On, in, on December 27th of 1926, a 23-year-old woman named Bonnie Pace of Kansas City, Missouri, was strangled to death and raped in her home. Her body was discovered in an upstairs room in their house by her husband. On December 28th, Germania Harpin, who is 28 years old, along with her eight-month-old infant son, Robert, was found murdered in her Kansas City home. Both of them had been strangled. Robert had been strangled with his cloth diaper. And Germania had been raped after her death. Her husband and his father discovered them when he returned from work that evening. And that's the last we hear of Earl Nelson in 1926. I have some questions that kind of went unanswered as far as those sort of last... Uh, group because we're going from uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, over to Kansas City, Missouri, and then we're adding a child to the to the situation, right? An eight month, Correct. eight an eight month old, and there's no indication of it. So it seems like it was like boarding house uh, hostesses seeking tenants that he targeted. Then it was like uh, women trying to sell their homes, right? Right. And there, there's no hint given as to why he would have come across Elmira Berard or uh, Bonnie Pace or Germania Harpin and her eighth-month-old son, Robert, right? Like there's no... Uh, His MO is changing. Is that what you mean? Well, he could have been doing it on purpose because he, you know, if he was paying attention, he would have realized that the Portland Police Department just put out a public service announcement to warn women of not allowing, you know, not 
just randomly showing rooms to strangers, right? Yeah. And so he moves on. I would I would have to know more information about these cases. Though I do think the baby's strange, especially an eight month old. Uh, don't you? Yeah, I think it's strange. I mean, that's one of the reasons this all comes up is when I look at it, I wondered if we'll just say they have him to some degree on what appears to be quite a few murders. Like just in this little spree we're talking here, like it's a lot. So what we just talked about, everything we talked about happens the year after he gets out of an institution. Okay. So if we just look at the list from the perspective of like, well, who are these victims? Okay. So we have one in Clara Newman, two in Laura Beale, three in Lillian St. Mary, four in Ollie Russell, five in Mary Nisbet, uh, six in Beata Withers, seven in Virginia Grant, eight in Mabel Fluke, nine with Anna Edmonds, 10 uh, is the woman that he doesn't kill. She survives in Burlingame. Um, We know her husband's name, but we don't know her name. So we'll put her off to the side and say she's a survivor. But that makes Florence Monks his his 10th murder victim. She's the woman from Seattle where he took the jewelry and he handed it off to the people he was living with. So 11 would be Blanche Myers. And then we've got one, two, three, four more victims, including an infant. This guy killed 16 people. That is so many murders in less than nine months, less than 10 months. I know it's, yeah, February through the end of the, so yeah. That's just Uh, since 1926. But it, so yes, it is a span of time, right? Uh, Because you're, the way it's set up though, like we're talking like he would kill a person a day, like, you know, three or four days in a row. And then there'd be a long period of time in between a longer period of time. Right. So like, they're all their own little sprees almost. Yeah. And, and, and he's, and towards the end, he started changing his MO. He's not, he's no longer the, the like the one ad guy. Well, I wondered, so I've wondered a lot because I haven't gotten a whole lot of information about at, So after he's, uh, left Portland and he's headed to these other kind of random places and cause he's in uh, Iowa on and December 23rd. You right? talk about the Iowa and the Missouri cases, right? Correct. And so like, you know, you, uh, I think you're right. His MO was changing, but also like, we don't know. I don't know. Like if California just had like a whole lot more uh, boarding houses, right? Because I think the population would be, would be higher. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know that he necessarily adjusted it because he was aware of like what the Portland Police Department had said or if he was aiming to tweak uh, the situation so he, you know, he wouldn't be being found out. He could have been completely unaware of what was happening as far as the media goes. We don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, he he may have been. I, I don't. I think that the moving locations is a necessity. So he understands, at least to some degree, that, like, they're looking for him. And there's a potential he could be identified. Don't you think that? 
I'm not sure. Um, I feel like people that are concerned that they're being looked for, they stop killing people. Yeah. Well, with him, I don't know how, like, he's been institutionalized several times at this point. I don't know if that's, like, a clear indicator that he's, like, truly mentally ill or if it's more that he is just a sort of a deranged criminal. Do you have any like sense of that from what you've read? Because there's so many sources on this, but a lot of them are just repeating the same sets of information because as I mentioned, this happens 97 years ago. We're largely in the dark. I think that it's pretty safe to say that for the most part, uh, from what is available, he didn't know any of these victims it, beyond just like a really fast, casual introduction and perhaps acquaintance, right? It was to the extent that like nobody in the victim's lives had any idea who this person was, right? Right. And so it, this is like, this would be the story of the monster, right? I mean, really, um, because I, I mean, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that most people that commit, I would say, probably any sort of murder, but especially murders that don't follow the typical um, paths of, you know, love, money, or revenge motives, like in this case, you know, it's safe to say that all, all perpetrators of murders, especially the ones that don't follow those motives, they have, a, they have a mental defect of some sort, okay? Okay. Um, I feel like that's really safe to say. Now, that doesn't mean that they're all incompetent, right? It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. Uh, there are varying levels of that. But to kill people like this, and I would say much less than this, actually, um, there's no question there's something wrong with this guy, right? Um, he's operating, at, you know, on a different level, whatever it is, uh, because I even the like the effort that's required for sort of this like transient guy right because he he has he he has no roots he's kind of wandering around and from what i know he's barely survived i mean he he doesn't have a job he's getting from place to place by however he can right uh, they talk about him like stowing away on the train and like, uh, I was going to say he rode a bus, but I don't know that that's what, did they have buses back then? I oh, think wow. it, I think he was hitchhiking. I think hitchhiking. he was, okay, I, yeah. I think he was hitchhiking. That's the idea. Okay. And so, um, but so my point is like, he is, um, he is just a transient guy who, you know, most people in those situations would be focusing on like their life. Right. And he's focusing on like killing women. Yeah. So the, you know, your question was like, do I think that he's mentally off? Do I have any sense of him? Like what kind of deranged criminal he is? Well, yeah, he's a deranged criminal. There's no question to that. Like, and I've, I've actually, unfortunately, I feel like I'm always going to be just kind of left with my, you know, mouth hanging open as far as like this kind of guy. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like they're they're, they're shocking. 
Right, because none of these women did anything to him except, you know, all they did was allow him possibly the opportunity to run a room. It doesn't seem like there was any sort of confrontation or any sort of problem leading up to it, right? Right. Uh, they were being very hospitable as far as that goes. And, you know, it, it mentioned uh, one of the women earlier on who called the police and said, you know, Adrian Harris is staying at my boarding house. And, you know, it came come to find out she was, she had been given Florence Monk's rings, right. Or jewelry. Right. And, and so, so there is a, there's a boarding house, a person who runs a boarding house who he rented a room using a false name that he did not kill. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about to wrap this episode up. What did you think of that? Well, I imagine that some circumstance arose that made it so he couldn't kill her, right? Like there were people there, right? Yeah. Um, Because you'll notice like all of his victims, like nobody had any idea or, or there's just a passing glance of someone having like sort of maybe seen the victim with somebody, right? Right, right. And so you're in you're in a situation where, you know, boarding houses have people coming through, you know, all the time, I assume. And and if the circumstances didn't line up, I mean he did have to have a place to stay. But my presumption was that something occurred that kept him from being able to murder that woman or the woman that was staying at the boarding house that he also gave Florence Monk's, uh, a piece of Florence Monk's jewelry to. Now, it, it would be interesting to know if that weren't the case, because that would mean he's making some sort of distinction, right? Yeah, like either the treatment or something about the person, either the way they treat him or the way they look or something about the circumstances is got to be uh, distinguished in his head. Correct, but I I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's I think that it is pure happenstance as far as like you know he probably thinks to himself, "Am I going to be able to get away with this?" Which it it is a very unique set of circumstances. I will say that because you've got a person who like it's not odd for them to be there because you know you are renting a room, and yet you show him the room completely unsuspecting that, you know, they're going to kill you. And nobody had any idea this person was ever there, right? I mean, in some ways, it's very, very clever. It's also horrifying, right? Um, But because of the uh, diversity of his victims, right, Uh, leading up to this point, at least, because of, like, all the different ages and it didn't seem to deter him at all that uh, he had a victim who did not succumb to his attack, right? Uh, she's sort of right in the middle of it, and, I mean, he just kept right on, right? I don't know that we're going to find some sort of distinguishing factor that's going to say, like, oh, this is why he didn't kill the boarding house owners that he came into contact with that he just stayed there and then left. But he did seem to have this like part of the MO. I don't know that we've mentioned it though, but part of like what he did was he would steal whatever he could from his victims. And so, you know, the, it sent a red flag up 
to where he to the boarding house owner that he was staying with because he had paid in advance and I, you know, they probably were like, well, he doesn't have money to pay in advance. Why is he doing that? And then leaving, he's up to something, right? That's what I imagine happening there. But he set it all up that way because he had no idea. And that tells me, you know, having paid for a week or like whatever money he was able to get from the previous victim, he paid for his room so he would have a place, right? And so leaving like he did was to avoid you know, being, uh, found out or suspected of the murder that was going to be discovered shortly at the other place. Right. And to me, that's really telling because it means that he was up for staying there for that amount of time or whatever. And I also don't know, like if they required you know, was it a nightly thing? Did you have to pay by the week? I don't know any of that stuff, but it would vary between the different places. Right. And all that comes into play in my mind when I'm thinking about like what this guy was doing. Right. Cause why, why on earth would he pay for extra nights? He wasn't going to use, well, he didn't know for sure if he was going to find somebody else to murder and have to hightail it out of there. Right. Right. And it, it becomes a pretty good alibi to be in that kind of transactional situation where it's not unusual for someone to have paid for one, two, three nights. And, you know, he did draw attention that way in, in this instance here with the jewelry. But other than that, like if he had been caught at one boarding house, well, if for some reason he became a suspect, but he hadn't been witnessed directly, he could just say, I wasn't staying in that boarding house. I, was, I stayed in a different one. Correct. And, and I think he relied on that or, so I can't really decide. I can't decide if like he just needed a place to stay. And so he stayed at the, some boarding houses. Like why was that the boarding house he stayed at and not where his next victim was? There's got to be factors that come into play there. I agree with you. And what we're going to do is we're going to leave off here for today because this guy's going to be active. Like, this is December of 1926 that we're leaving off at. This guy's going to be active for another 18 months. And we're going to cover that next and some of the fallout from this, plus some of sort of what was going on uh, in, in other news during this time and how that might have affected some of what we're talking about here. Do you have anything else to say about this period, which is February of 1926 through after Christmas 1926? No, not at this time. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creation sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. 
They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabradiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some Cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution, or an ORS, that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural real food ingredients all Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of 
time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this, for Laird, is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. 
you get to feel a sense of Zen, knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code, TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is true crime XS. And it's time for you to share your story today. <laughs> 